episode six, Critical Distance Confab. With me today from Down Under is site creator and editor Ben Abraham. Hey, how you doing? Special guest from Gamer Melodico called by Mitch Kropat, the blog of the year, Kirk Hamilton. Hello. And from Vorpal Bunny Ranch, the Borderhouse blog, and Gay Gamer, Mr. Dennis Farr. Hello. Well, it's been a long time since we had the last podcast, and given the time of year, I thought it only appropriate that we host a year-end retrospective on gaming criticism, the community, and the games themselves. I actually checked out the game releases this year, and and I just wrote down just the major ones, just the major ones that got people talking, and every single month had at least three. Really? Wow. Yeah, it's like this year... You had Bayonetta, Mass Effect, Darksiders in January, Bioshock, Dante's Inferno, Heavy Rain in February, Bad Company 2, Final Fantasy 13, God of War 3, Metro 2033 in March, and it just goes on from there. And October has eight major releases to outdo everyone, but it just seems to me that this is different than every other year. I definitely noticed that in the first part of the year. It seemed like it was the richest first half of the year that I've ever seen. Thanks to all delays from last year, I think we're going to see that a lot next year too yeah i think you're right yeah it starts out as an accident i'm wondering if publishers are noticing that oh we can make money throughout the year instead of trying to compete during october and november can we spread this out and make money and is that going to be beneficial for everyone well one thing i saw happen this year is the major push during the holidays was trying to sell the consoles not necessarily games plus you had new peripherals that they were trying to push hmm yeah, so the Kinect and the Sony Move, I guess, were both the version of the next generation of hardware. Well, and yeah. both of those systems didn't really have very good games out yet since they just launched, so it seemed like they were definitely more about the potential than about the actual software. Well, they were, in fact, a console launch. The X, the 360 didn't have good games at its launch. The Wii only had one good game at its launch. PS3 had one good game, and it, and it seems the same here. The Kinect has... Dance Central, the one good game. Which, you know, honestly, I've played that game. I, I mean, it's fun. It's still a little... I, I Maybe it was just the Kinect, but it's still not... It doesn't feel like a full realization at all. Like, it was cool. I don't know if I'd buy a Kinect for it, though. I think this really is just a new console launch, as you yeah. as it was mentioned. It, you're going to have the iffy person. You're going to have the weak third-party support. And as soon as people figure out how to use it, they'll implement them better. Unfortunately, they should do that by March before the 3DS. And then, of course, Nintendo steals the show, but same well, as last you know, the time. 3DS has, like, a launch line. <laughs> All those games they've announced come out when the system launches. It's going to have, like, the best launch lineup of any console ever. But all those games were made in 98, so... Right, true. That's true. But another thing with the game releases here is that I was talking with uh, Ian, Ian Miles Chong, a few days ago, that... None of them seem like they're going to be that memorable. We have, like, Far Cry 2 is still being talked about. Other games are still being talked about. It doesn't seem like any games, maybe one or two, but there's just going to be a laundry list of this that's going to be remembered or still talked about in the years to come. It's funny, you know, a lot of the games that seem the most memorable are the games I haven't played yet. I think people still talk about Deadly Premonition in a few years. From what I've read about Metro 2033, at least the way Tom talks about it, Tom Bissell, I mean, that sounds like another kind of weird, idiosyncratic game that, mm, uh, you know, yeah. they'll stand the test of time in a way that a lot of these sort of, because there were a ton, I mean, this fall was just a ton of sequels. And, you know, what do you say about Fallout New Vegas other than that it's like, it's fine and it's Fallout or, you know, Fable 3, like there's some stuff to say about that. But yeah, no one's going to talk about that game in a year or two. And I think it depends. Like, I wouldn't have expected Metro 2033 at all. It wasn't on my radar until other people started talking about it. Yeah, and sometimes that's what makes like that particular kind of underground game last for so long. 
Yeah, and then that, that seemed to be a, a big deal that a lot of surprise games seem to be taking the forefront this year. Minecraft, Sleep is Death, Hey Baby, Deadly Premonition, Neptune Pride were just the ones I pulled out. Oh, I no love Neptune's ever... Pride. That was awesome. Yeah, it was funny, you know, uh, Ben, you were talking about that online, and man, I remember when, like, you and everyone else was playing that game, I didn't even know what it was, yeah. and you were going on and on about it, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't even believe that was the same year as, you know, Minecraft or these other games that I kind of heard about. I'm still playing. Nowhere. I'm actually in the middle of a game of Neptune's Prime. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I'm waiting for I'm the new one. one. Uh, Blight of the Immortals? Yeah, I think yep. that's what it is. It's out. It's in beta, yeah. isn't it? I'm playing a game of it. Oh, yeah, well, it is. Not I think Neptune's if Minecraft Pride, showed us yeah. anything, it's that a game can be in beta and we can still play it. Yeah, the thing is, is that Neptune's Pride itself is still in beta, but it, I don't know what you could add. It's it's a complete package that its simplicity defies its depth. Mm, yeah, I don't think you could do any more to Neptune's Pride without seriously undermining its simple appeal. Eh? Uh, you know, I have that thought about Minecraft. I haven't played the beta. I know it's in beta now. Like, it just switched and there's uh, some changes. Tomorrow. Tomorrow it goes into beta. Oh, tomorrow, yeah. That seems like a game, though, that it was interesting. A lot of people were talking. I was talking to Jason Schreier about this. You know, he's saying it's not a game of 2010, and and he's right. I mean, it, it came out last year, and it's actually not really out yet since it was an alpha all year. Even though, you know, I think it's undeniably a game of 2010. But it's sort of interesting. You know, that game keeps changing. Like, maybe it'll suck by the time it comes out as a commercial release. Like, it'll, <laughs> but, yeah. but you it can won't still... have that magic that everyone loved about it. The thing is, you can um, still I, play I it. Doubt it. Sorry. You can still play its classic release, and I get a feeling that you'll still have the option of playing its lesser forms as he adds more and more as, as sub-options of how to play right, it. Right. The build mode, the, the survival mode, then you'll have the story mode. Yeah, but it's difficult to get, like, a certain... Like, so if you wanted to play the... Uh the August version of uh, Minecraft. You can't really go back to that either. I would because the new version broke my computer. Yeah, well, yeah I know. I remember a lot of people complaining about the Halloween update. Or yeah, I so, Like, that. you know, they changed the torches and... No, no, it wasn't yeah, that. My it's were unhappy too. It caused a memory leak, so now it takes up a gig of my processor and more just to run it. Uh, well, that, that does sound like a game in alpha. Yeah, and it didn't do that before, but but it's still fun to play if I turn off every other program on my computer. So, are we going to talk about some of our favorite pieces of writing from the year? Or? I actually, yeah. if you you can start then, <clears> because <throat> I didn't pull out specific pieces of writing. Yeah. Okay. So I only really like I I didn't give it enough thought. It, well, not not enough for um, how big a task it was. I sort of, you know, thought about it for like 10 minutes and went, mm, yeah, I could probably talk about something. Two main things that I, that I wanted to bring up, and the first was basically the, the entire output of Tom Bissell, his Extra Lives book and any of his other stuff that he, he's written online around the place. I think that sort of, everything he writes basically is part of, is part of my favorite writing about games. There's just some, he's got it, you know what I mean? He's like, he's absolutely nailed how to write about games in his particular manner, which, which I wrote about recently in that sort of persuasive kind of approach. Yeah. A topic for another time in itself. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. Four topics. Yeah, I agree. His book was, I thought his book was incredible. I thought it was. I thought bits of it were good. I read the, and I, and I wrote a review of it that I, I wasn't really sure what it was trying to do. There were great passages, like him explaining Resident Evil and how it was the prognosticator for games writing and presentation to be bad, or or even his description of uh, of how Bioware sets itself up or Left for Dead to like a complete person who knows nothing about it. But beyond that, I didn't know what. It, 
he was trying to say with it. Yeah. It seemed... You know, part of, what I, part of what I liked about that book was that it didn't, I mean, you know, Tom's a novelist, and uh, it was almost like by putting the subtitle, Why, Why Video Games Matter, which I know it, it just seemed like it wasn't his initial idea. Like, I think he would have just called it Extra Lives, and I think about the book a lot if it had just been called that. So did, um, and, um, have, have any, all of you... Um heard the uh the story behind the subtitle because he he explained it a couple of it times sounds, yeah i remember well, part of the well story so so the the subtitle was originally going to be extra lives why video games matter and why they don't matter more oh yeah that's in the forward yeah which when I, I if when you read it with that in mind you just go yeah absolutely because he is he spends the whole book basically trying to communicate and persuade the reader hey i friggin love this stuff but gosh there is so much crap out there and it is so embarrassing well, and yeah. so annoying sometimes. And he just he just walks that line like perfectly. Well, definitely. And he, I mean, he's in terms of like that Resident Evil section you're talking about, Eric, is amazing. I think that's like a, you know, I don't want to use the word tour de force. I think it's really good. I thought it was like some <laughs> really effective experiential uh, game writing. And I got really into that this year personally, like the idea of how to communicate to people the experience you had while playing a game. Uh, well, not to talk about the design or the writing or the, you know, just to talk about your experience. And he does that so well, I think because he comes from this novelistic background where he spends his time communicating experiences and, and yeah, building experience. Yeah, he's definitely I, really I, good I just, at it. I love that book. And I think that's kind of, that's why, like, was because he was doing that so effectively. One of the things that I wrote about recently in the um, rhetorical questions piece was, <clears throat> I guess, the difference between his approach with that and Kieran Gillen's New Games Journalism sort of approach, which I think has similar aims, but comes from a different philosophical background. So my reading of... What do you see the difference being there? Exactly? Yeah, well, so my reading of New Games Journalism is that, oh, it's it's a bit too postmodern in that it's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, it doesn't matter. Everything is all up for interpretation and postmodern, wishy-washy feeling, whatever you want to call it. So we may as well just write whatever the most fun is, and the most fun is just writing about our experiences. And that might be a bit of a mischaracterization, but that seemed to me a little bit of a, well, it sort of followed the philosophy retreat from talking about the real world. Like, so you can, Bissell shows it, you can talk about games subjectively without, you know, retreating into the existential angst of postmodernism. You can be subjective and still entirely valid. Yeah, maybe the difference is just like stopping a little bit short from going the full hog into whatever new game journalism goes into. I think the full point, I think the actually the difference there was the, the larger point of what the the subjective experience was. In this case, Bissell was trying to show off what games have become to an audience that doesn't know them. He's trying to explain them why they matter and where we're not. To an to an insider like me, I didn't really gain much from the book other than beautiful writing, and I think that was pretty much the consensus among the critical circle you know i don't know though i wouldn't like devalue beautiful writing um i'm not totally sure that some of those sections were intended for people who don't play games like i did get the sense sometimes that that he was writing maybe he was like writing for the person in all of us who doesn't play games a little bit more than he was writing for i mean you know i can't speak for tom obviously he tried like that section on left for dead it was pretty specific i mean if you hadn't played mm, left for dead and yeah that absolutely section, you'd have no idea what the hell he was talking about although he did go to some length to try and explain it he went and, yeah like and, all the and, special um, infected he the basic idea and purpose behind the gameplay he did do a pretty admirable job of trying to simplify it well and sure and i mean i guess i i think that I mean, I, I love that book so much because it, the writing was so great. Um, so much of the writing 
that's going on about games just hasn't been at that level where I was talking to someone who I was talking to someone on Twitter the other day about what good games criticism involves. Mm. And I said, you know, it kind of involves a good mix of mechanical analysis and aesthetic analysis and, you know, a history of games and it involves good metaphor. And he kind of laughed and was like, well, I get, I get your first two points, but why, why metaphor? Why is metaphor important? And I was, you know, I tried to, I mean, I think that gameplay and playing a game is inherently difficult to talk about. It's like talking about anything else, like talking about music is difficult too. And, and the use of metaphor is really important in mm. just making yeah. it something that we can talk about. Tom is an incredible at metaphor. Yeah. And so he can make this these abstract kind of gameplay, like how it feels to play Far Cry 2, how it feels to play whatever else, uh, Resident Evil. And he can make that really accessible by yeah. using metaphors because he's such a great writer. Well, and I think that's great. One of the, the things that I, I... One of my pet hates in any kind of games writing is um, the kind of mechanical prose that... Like, basically, every games writer has to break out into at some point to actually explain game mechanics. Like, Oh, yeah, right. And even, even Bissell, like, comes so close to doing it sometimes, and every time he does, I'm just like, no, don't bother. It's not <laughs> worth it. If you, have to, if you have to explain something in such rigorous detail, then it just seems to me like a pointless exercise because, for starters, you don't actually end up with anything at all like an understanding of the rules that you would have if you actually played them. So, like, why even bother trying to, you know, elaborate on them in this this sort of dry mechanical surgical dissection? Um, well, I think it depends largely on how you want to approach it. I mean, if you look at criticism in almost any other field, this sort of experiential viewpoint we're talking about, this reader response viewpoint, is generally frowned upon. However, if the mechanics support that, it depends on how far you want to go into discussing those mechanics, because the examination of those mechanics is what other criticisms do. Yeah, so I guess my my response to that is that <clears throat> there's something quite different about games that makes... makes the user experience above everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. That's exactly the point, I think. Well, and that's like fundamental to the medium, you know, that you're, you build an experience for somebody and they have it in a way that you don't in any other art form, except maybe, you know, some progressive forms of theater. I'm actually not sure how else you could discuss games without including their mechanics, because that's, that's what's fundamental and... Without that, you're discussing well, something else. Right. Well, yes, it's sort, of, it's sort of the question of whether you want to be completely structuralist or if you want to be post-structuralist in this instance. If you want to be structuralist and look at only the mechanics and see how they build upon an experience, if you want to move beyond that and focus on the experience, it may be matter. Well, you know, that one of my favorite pieces of the year, actually, was uh, uh, Simon Ferrari's piece about Final Fantasy XIII. Mm. Um, he wrote this thing. Uh, it was called, I think it was called Hills and Lines. And man, I mean, so I didn't really like that game for all the reasons that everyone else didn't like it. Uh, it was like the first game that I did a professional review of. And so I really thought about it and really played it. And I was like, yeah, man, this isn't doing it for me. And then I read his piece and he really liked it because he looked at it like it was pure. I mean, it was left brained in its entirety. It was like how the combat encounters scale and like how the game is balanced and how everything is designed. And it was really, I mean, it was a hell of a. A hell of a piece of analysis but yeah it was entirely structural it was entirely analytical and I, it kind of showed me like both the the value of that way of looking at something and the limitation another piece i'd like to bring up along that line is one that ben sort of jokingly points at a lot as deep space as a critique of liberal of neoliberal economics yeah that's a great piece oh, you're talking about um <clears throat> oh, dead space I actually look when I was looking through the last this week in video game blogging posts. I actually came across that one and, and took took a quick look at it. And it's, 
it's it's long mm. and in depth. But and, well, and with, so if you consider games criticism, it's relatively young. Almost every other school of criticism, the other media has various branches. We've not reached that point yet. Well, that's what's so fun about it. We're, we are the ground floor. <clears throat> Sorry, just to not to not to labour the point, but I think Simon Ferrari's piece um, is a good example for what what the what I'm trying to say here. So even even when you read Simon Ferrari's excellent piece on Final Fantasy, you still you're not encountering those rules in the same way you're encountering them when you're actually playing the game. Um, like right, you. no, it didn't really communicate the experience of playing. I mean, the experience of playing that game for me was a pretty mind-numbing exercise in bland characterization and bizarre storytelling. And, you know, it was a lot of things going on at once. Mm. Well, it is and a Final I, Fantasy you know, game. It, it, kind of, it kind of maybe it communicated the way that Simon saw the game, which was cool because I think he sees the game incredibly differently than, say, I do. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, criticism, I mean, I guess part of the question is what's valuable uh, to whom and why why does that matter? Uh, does it matter that it's valuable to in an academic way, in a structural way? Does it matter that it's valuable as a consumer review to people who haven't played the game? It's, I mean, it's a lot of great questions that don't have clear answers, but uh, yeah. either way, I liked that the piece raised those questions. Actually, you bring up uh, another point, which is actually sort of what the purpose of critical distance is in the first place. Just put it all, all together where someone can find it. That's what the Ben points people to the game's writing search engine, because once they finish a game, so if, it was, if it left an effect, they want to read about it. Critical Distance is sort of a place where you can actually come here, quick search, and you can find things about it. Just last night, I forgot who it was on Twitter, we talked about Haunting Grounds and wondering, had anyone worked on it? Quick search, and I sent him two links about some people who had written about the game. Yeah, we did something similar to that with the Left 4 Dead uh, intro. Mm. intro. Yeah, that was a funny game. experience. Just yesterday. That, that it was, was really funny. That was and incredible. it started, we found one good post, and then we found that other, like that, that post. You that found three like, in the end. Yeah, and that was cool. That was like exactly what I was looking for. And, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was neat to, because otherwise, I mean, someone's got to be chronicling this stuff, so. Well, it's sort of like, it's all out there on the internet, right? If, uh, I guess the big giant brain of the internet knows where it all is, we just sort of have to tap into, into that knowledge. Yeah, somehow. but Google will send, send back a lot of, that's the whole, that was the whole point of the game writing search engine that Simon yeah. Ferrari created, because Google sends back a lot of worthless stuff. Yeah, it really does. Well, because, you know, 85% of games writing out there is crap. I mean, you know, I don't know if it also sound like harsh, but you know, like, right it's there. just commercial crap. Like, yeah. it's, well, you know, there's no way to put in a tag in your search, like, not crap. Simon found a way. Simon found a way. reviews from IGN about Dead Space before you find that piece about Dead Space and, you know, economics or whatever. Yeah. No, Simon found a way. That's true. He found the not crap tag. Well, what he does <laughs> is he puts logs into the engine. So it only searches those blogs. So it filters out the crap by people who post reviews only. Right, which is, which is, and that's, you know, that's a slippery slope, not to, you know, use that overused term. But that is dicey. I mean, there is some really good writing on IGN. Uh, Michael Thompson does some awesome writing for them. And we but link that to would that. be in the search engine. So. Yeah, we, right. You guys do. But if you miss one of his pieces or something, you know what I mean? Like if IGN yeah. is exempted from yeah. Well, I, I, I wrote the piece Transparency for Critical Distance, probably another, probably the one important thing I wrote this year that anyone's going to remember about the about the whole situation. We need help, and we need people to send things in from obscure corners of the internet we never did, and next week when it when it was time for them to show up, three people sent one thing in. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I send stuff in almost every week. It's so, true, you so, do. And I really appreciate that, Kirk. It's, um, 
it's yeah invaluable absolutely invaluable oh it's fun but but yeah it's, it's like critical distance is a sort of a gatekeeper and depending on who doing it that week it's because it's how harsh a gatekeeper ian is very is if he can't come up with a cohesive thing about a piece then if it's too light or it's too fluffy for him he won't include it ben is very democratic with how he chooses what goes in what doesn't and i'm like a blunderbuss aiming at my computer screen (laughs) (laughs) possibly moving on to something else that i wrote down is like i just like was looking at events that happened throughout the year which meant i had to go through every single uh weekly post that we had just to see where the trends were going and i had actually forgotten if some of this had happened that Ebert declaring games as an God, art. That was this year. Yeah, uh, wow. Jesus, do we have to talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I thought I oh, so I wasn't the only one who forgot. Yes, and and I will. Well, talk- yeah, Eric. I mean, you were like the champ, man. You like wrote the <laughs> ultimate blog post of all time chronicling that. It, Why no, don't we was, just link everybody to that and leave it. it. That's what I'm just. That's what I'm going <laughs> to yeah, do in the show. Notes. But the thing is, I never wrote. A, I'm probably going to have to to properly organize it because at the end it was just becoming a list of links. <laughs> I couldn't even be, bo- be bothered to organize um, have them. Have fun properly organizing that. <laughs> it you was. could also just write a post that says Ebert was wrong, and then you can run <laughs> that, and then you'd be done with it. Well, the thing <laughs> is, I still have to add that link from Kotaku that who defended Ebert's right not to give a crap. That's his right. I'm still adding links to that post. Wow, that's uh, uh, that's quite an effort. Another thing was. Uh, uh, Jesse Shell's design, his uh, achievements discussion, what was it, presentation that went up on the internet that we have a critical compilation that happened this year. We're, we're basically the gamification of everyday activities. Mm. Yeah, that was really Jesse Shell thing was cool. But, I mean, I, yeah, we we wrote a big thing. Annie, uh, Annie Wright and I wrote a big thing at Melodico about that. There was sort of fun it was just us sort of going back and forth about it um i saw jesse talk then in san francisco he came and gave a follow-up talk that i also wrote up and then he actually wound up putting the video online it was really interesting i mean that guy he's i mean he's brilliant and he's a really really good public speaker so it was just an entertaining talk to see Uh, i mean it raised so many questions it seemed like it was the teacher in him more than the entrepreneur that gave that talk he was trying to raise questions more than he was trying to come up answers oh no it was absolutely interesting it's actually one of the few things i showed my dad in relation to the gaming community and uh his first reaction was don't you dare take away my airline points (laughs) and the second reaction at once the talk was ending says it was basically oh boy this is where we're headed isn't it it's like he he could see the the 1984 or brave new world-ness of what that was actually the really funny thing he said in his follow-up talk. That It's funny that you said both of those. Because he's like, everyone says that the future I'm proposing is Orwellian. It's not. It's Huxleyan. No, no. I, mm, as soon as someone... Yeah, someone, yeah I can see that. It was really funny. He's like, I actually read Big both Brother books. rules through positive reinforcement, not through fear. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny. I, I read both those books around the time. when people are saying, it's 1984. And I'm saying, no, no. really. I'm pretty sure it's more Brave New World. It's yeah. a little bit of both. I thought that was cute. Um, what else happened this year? Uh, business news. E3 sort of go- went by with a whimper this year than than most mostly does. Clint Hawking uh, moved moves on. Well, he moved on in spectacular fashion. Didn't that he? was that was actually yeah it was. And, that was uh, a strange thing he wrote. And Kieran Gilling steps down from Rock Paper Shotgun. Yeah, that was uh, quite a moment for those of us who were big Rock Paper Shotgun fans. Mm. It was like the the farewelling of uh, one of our heroes. So. And he's 
and he wrote one of the most important pieces because we're still talking about it, news game journalism, if I'm right. The Blizzard Real ID controversy came out. Now, Dennis, I know you, you were really into this during the year. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting because I don't think game companies, they're trying to add more and more social elements to become social networks. Uh, I don't think they've quite realized that people when playing games don't necessarily want that. It's one thing to play Facebook games. It's another to implement Facebook into your game. Mm. Even Skype, what we're using right now, is trying to become a more social network than simply a telephone service. Well, so is Steve. I was at a... Uh, if you guys have played... Have you guys played Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, that game? A little bit. So... It's cool. I mean, I like it. It's fun. I like Assassin's Creed. I, I, and I, I went to this Ubisoft press event in San Francisco, and their guy came up, and he talked about Facebook, like, the whole time. And they, I guess there's, like, a Facebook. I'm not sure what this is. So um, it's a, it's like I a, could be a little off, but there's, like, like, some kind of integration with your... You can play parts of the game. Like, I think the assassin recruiting, you can do that via Facebook. There's and also, you can see how your friends... There's also doing. side story mission, special story missions that are Facebook only that they, re, they, they sort of reveal themselves like a book, and you get the next bit when you complete some task. And more and more companies are going to start doing that. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, he had a... He had a hard on for it forgive the term i mean he was like you could tell like the company was like this this uh w they look at facebook and they're like there is so much money to be made here so we're gonna definitely see more of it i think which yeah dennis i think you're right that it raises a lot of questions about why people play that was actually the next another thing i had written down was like the, the rise of the facebook the iphone the ipad the android gaming markets if they start sort of started like in 2008 2009 but they really hit their stride this year they were be, they're becoming the new force mm, i oh, yeah. think michael abbott said that uh mobile gaming or maybe ipad gaming was going to be his game of the year this year which was appropriate uh, can't he ever just choose a title? <laughs> no, he did. It was much to call it that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, Infinity Blade. Yes, I know. Infinity but... Blade. I don't really want to play that. The the thing is, is like for those of us, if you if you don't have AT and T, you're locked out of pretty much the entire, almost that entire market. Well, you can get an iPod Touch or an iPad. Yeah. Um, as someone who just dropped AT and T, thank God, I can actually still play games on my iPhone, <laughs> even though it's not a phone. The thing is, there are a lot of... This is a, just a business model. They can have it on the iPhone. They can have it on the iPod. If they would just release it on iTunes for PC and Mac as well, I would be a happy customer. Yeah, I think there's a lot of issues with but, Apple and their like, development. I, I would... Because the thing is, I want to play, like, Spider. I would like to I would like to try out Infinity Blade. I'd like to try out Angry Birds. But I don't have an iPhone. I don't have the App Store. But I can't... I have a PC. And it can perfectly connect to iTunes if it wanted to whether or not the developers also want to put the time and effort into porting that for PC. I mean, those are designed for touch gaming or tilt gaming. Yeah, it would be hard to play Spider. I mean, you could do it, but it wouldn't be the same as to play Spider on a computer. Um, but if I can... Hey, Dennis, if uh, I want to I talk about this real ID thing a little bit more. Um, I think it's a really interesting... I think it was a really interesting thing that happened. Um, the, the school where I teach is experimenting with doing some sort of uh, closed social networking and stuff with identity and like whether the kids have to have avatars that look like them and whether they have to use their real name and i thought that whole controversy was really interesting uh i know that at the border house they wrote about it a lot but um i guess i'm well, just I mean, curious about more of your thoughts on it well there the issue becomes the issue is multifold one if you're for instance a transgendered person if you registered with blizzard long time ago and you have your name under one thing that you couldn't change your name so if you're mm -hmm. if you're now female and you had registered while you were under a male name 
your name would show up as male, which is problematic. Um, trans people don't necessarily want to be known for being trans online, particularly in Blizzard games like WoW. Um, the other one is if you're female, you don't necessarily want your name to be out there where people can easily search you. In the day, it, considering we have things like Facebook, it's very easy to find somebody online these days. So it just means you have to be much more guarded about your presentation online, which just becomes a bigger and bigger issue. So I guess I'm, I wonder what, what do you think Blizzard's thinking was on it? I mean, I've, that's what I've tried to figure out. It seems like such a no-brainer that... I don't think they did think about it. I think they, they seemed so sure, though. They had this really specific... I mean, there must have been a buck in it for them somehow. So where was it? I mean, why is there a benefit in having people use their real name? That's what I couldn't figure out, personally. Like, I just... It seemed like, why are you doing this? I wonder if it's partly ideological in that they've bought into the whole Mark Zuckerberg's vision for you know, a future without privacy, basically. Um, well, it's, right. I think it's more than that, is that they're very, I guess, self-centered, is it? Because now, to use uh, any game, you have to log into their networks, you have to log in through their servers, there's mm, no more yeah. independent LAN, is that they want everything, I think it has to do with more, they want everything central about them so they can control ha the flow of information and data. Well, and more companies are going to do that, too. I mean, look at Bioware. In order mm -hmm. to get any of their DLC, you have to register it through the socialware, social Biowares. Ubisoft is the same. They have the make sure that you have pirate uses their pirate system. Has to, Even if you're using it on the PS3 or Xbox, you got to log into their servers for a single-player game. I look at Steam, and I think that, you know, I'm new to Steam because I haven't had a PC for a while, so now it's on Mac. But it seems like they're, they aren't interested in that at all. I mean, they just provide a service, and they're, they're doing a great job as far as, like, is there any sign of Steam heading in that direction? No, but at the same time, Steam as a community is much more advanced. I mean, I just recently wrote about it on Gay Gamer. The fact that Steam is, Steam started off very light. It, it had nothing to compete with PlayStation Network and Xbox Live, in my opinion. But slowly you've seen things like achievements on Steam, and now they have mm -hmm. ways for you to recommend games, and now they have ways for you to comment on other people's profiles and are trying to push you to do that, rather. And Steam is becoming its own social network, but it's not trying to tie that to your real name. It also mm -hmm. doesn't force any of it on of you. It's, it's just there if you want it. Right. I don't use most of that. I use it for the game purchases and almost little else, and it doesn't hurt me, punish me, or do anything that all these other services seem to do if you if you don't participate. Steam itself is a huge DRM. That's true. Yeah, it but... seems to me like all of that social stuff, like making that social stuff elective is just, uh, that. like you're talking about Zuckerberg. I mean, Zuckerberg's whole deal is, we'll tell people that it's elective, but then we'll slowly erode, you know, their privacy and we'll keep changing our yeah. settings and making yeah. their default. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm really surprised that these guys think that. I think it displays a serious arrogance on the part of people who, who make these networks. Like, I've built a world and I'm God and I I can do what I want. And like, yeah. no kidding, I really, that's where mm. it's coming from. Where when people actually hear it and they it's done to them and they, they revolt like with the blizzard. Oh yeah, well, and that's the thing. Somebody took those people's names and published them online and talked about everything. Oh yeah, that was awesome. I like as Didn't much they, as I, And they also like, got, kind of they also, they also got like Google Google street map views of their place because they were yeah. able to track it all down. Yep. In like five minutes too. And Facebook. Yeah, I know. That was, that was cool, even though it was a little scary. Yeah, so one well, of the I mean, um, possible things, and I think this trend towards um, social networking in, in games could have is like a, you know, like a kind of backlash effect when, um, when it gets to the point where the added, you know, uh, bonus or advantage, whatever it is that you get out of having a social network in your game, 
just becomes not worth the extra hassle of having to maintain another social network. It's like when I started using Ping on iTunes. I was like, this isn't really worth the time that it will take me to like. Oh, I yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I haven't even touched Ping. Turn it off again. Well, I guess that that's a it's a huge conversation right there. That once again could be was its own topic for the longest time. Just the next thing I have down here is like Portal getting on a, a college course description list. Mm-hmm. At my alma mater. Yeah, that yeah, was. Right. I was. It was hard to believe that was this year. Though I mean, at that particular college, it's not that difficult to imagine, just because it's a liberal art education which fully believes in that sort of stance. So, for instance, when I was there, that same course had films, uh, plays, musical pieces, uh, art. So, I mean, it's just expanding its boundaries. If nothing else, just to get people thinking that way, which is what a college is for, it's great. Well, and, you know, it was interesting that, so at the, the school where I teach, I, what I liked about what Michael pulled off there, it wasn't that he like put the game, he didn't put the game on the book list as a study in game. He put it as like a sort of response to Goffman's presentation of self in everyday life. He was looking at a different, you know, at, at a text and responding to it and then looking at the game through the lens of the text. Oh no, I which guess. Which is cool, you know, the, I mean, I, the, where I teach, I've actually got a bunch of teachers right now playing through Portal, but it's totally from a, I mean, it's, we're nowhere near that level. I mean, I'm just trying to get them to understand why this game is so cool and what it, you know, the kind of problem solving that it encourages. Well, just looking at it through a lens as a response to something is a way to see that the game is itself and worth something by showing it as a larger figure saying games can do this. You can look at a game critically just by doing it by example proves that it can be done in reality, if you well, see where I'm course, getting that. That course is largely designed on interconnectedness in media. For instance, it's based off an old course called Cultures and Traditions, wherein you had three modules and various media would be presented. I know in one we watched Frankenstein, and then we also read the book, and then we compared it later on to various things that had happened in African-American culture and Latino culture. Well, it's, you know, about... it's funny that it works that way, too, because I feel like we're what we were talking about earlier with game criticism. I mean, so much of game criticism requires cross-medium analysis because games are everything, which is, uh, you know what I mean by mm, when I say yeah. that? Like no, games, each medium, each medium the goes off Yeah, the they're the super medium, right? So when you're talking about a game, it isn't just that you're talking about the art and the architecture and the music and the cinematography and the writing and the performances and the philosophical questions that it raises. It's even that you can use the language of any of those disciplines to talk about the game itself. So to use a game then to talk about you know a non-game topic I think is, is brilliant and just fits. Uh, it's, it's really cool. It gets at sort of the difficulty and the coolness about writing about games in general. All right. Next thing on the list was the Humble Indie Bundle experiment that we're now in the middle of the second one. Yeah, which I haven't bought. Have any of you guys bought that yet? I, I own most of the games already. It's yeah, I don't own most of the games. It's intriguing to me that the indie scene in general is banding together more. You're seeing more and more bundles. You're seeing more and more. Mm, they're working kind of as a block, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, but no. Well, there was even that winter of indie. What was the thing called? There was like Upper the. What there was, was it? the Summer of Love indie bundle too, I think as well. Yes. Maybe that's what it was. It but was the, funny. It was like the indie apocalypse or something, and they all came out. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing, though, that seemed interesting is that there was an experiment because it's indie, 
it's it's for charity. It's cross-platform and whatever you could want. It's DRM-free and it's digital distribution. Basically, every complaint you could have against piracy, and it was still one. It was still pirated to a, a degree that is mind-boggling. Not just among torrent sites, but people actually physically stole, well, digitally stole it, using their the, the site's bandwidth. And that seems gamers' entitlement is coming really to a head. That. We gave you everything you wanted, and you still pirated. That kind of gets to fundamental human nature. I mean, I, I wonder whether the—I should know this—whether uh, the um, was the hum, the humble indie bundle was profitable though for everybody who gave it yes. to it. Right? Yes, it was. But very it, much so. It just—I know it was, and that's the one story. Just to me, that the other story is is the uglier side. You could pay a penny, get everything you want, or you could make us pay. You basically pay the system money for you to steal it from us right, right. torrents like torrents yeah they're jerks are going to especially if you can get it free but it's the people who stole it using the, the site's bandwidth making them pay for the bandwidth while they're getting it for free yeah i don't know that seems like a sticking point where if you look at like i don't know when i look at the broad the broader question is like look we're gonna we're gonna lean on the goodwill of the entire world we're gonna see what happens here we're gonna put our i mean you know what bands do this too they release their album they say but pay what you want for it and yeah, like, you know, 80% of people are assholes, but the 20% of people that are cool can actually support you. Um, mm, it seemed like a, yeah. a success story to me, like that the fact that they made money and didn't, I mean, they lost bandwidth, but I know, and I know bandwidth costs something, but I'm sure that in the end, and I'm not, I mean, I guess I'm not sure, but um, if they made money off of it in the end, the bandwidth didn't cost them more than the amount that they made from people who actually paid them. I mean, I know I paid them, so... You know, a lot of other people did. It, I don't know. It, it seemed like a, a net positive for me. Just I, the fact that the sequel made how much money? Like, well, I know. That, well, it's up. because this time there was almost a competition between the wealthy to who could donate the most and not. Well, that's amazing, though. Oh, my God. If you can get the wealthy competing to donate. <laughs> I know. It was, it was like, hell oh, yeah. Like, you are doing something right. You I know. know? Not, <laughs> like a week into it, Notch of Minecraft fame said donated $20,000. And two days later, he was outbid. 2000 I think it was. No, it was $20,000. $20, and... Oh. And then he was just outdone two days later. Well, that's incredible. I mean, the fact yes. that they even set it up to go, I mean, they have won already. So, like, that's awesome. I mean, I really, like, and with an a lot of going to I'm an independent artist it's... myself. And, like, to see how that worked, man, I mean, I think that that's great. Oh, and a bunch, I think a bunch of indies came together this year, including uh, Sky, who did Braid. A bunch of them, it's Jonathan Blow, Kelly Santiago, and a few others came together and they created a fund where they will fund your project if you submit to them that was this year yep wow well you know that kind year. of fund is that kind of fund is possible because you know jonathan blow did so well with braid and kelly santiago did so you know these guys have all made a bunch of money with their games and so now they're able to pay it forward uh, that's cool i mean that's that's a precedent for a pretty cool few years i think especially with the indie games that came out this year i mean yeah god i mean god <laughs> like i agree completely Oh no! This this was a good year for the Indies. We we talked about this before we started recording the show, but PAX East was first this year. I met Dennis there. They're a great time to be had. Yeah, how was PAX East? I, I wish I had gone, but what was the general vibe of it? Uh, it was a very social experience, more so than it was centered on presenting new games. It was not at all like E3. Have you guys been? I went to PAX Prime this year. Have you guys been to PAX Prime ever? It was. No. Too, it, it's. If you could, if you could have put, if you could have put me up, I I would have gone this year. If I could, <laughs> yeah, right. someone put me up, because you were offering me a pass. Tax Prime seems to focus more on games, hands-on with games. I don't it feel does. Like you know, there, yeah, there's a fair amount of that there. 
Yeah, PAX East might become that, but the first year it was fun. It was great to meet everyone I usually just talk to on Twitter. And, of course, unfortunately, this also brings out you have to talk about how PAX next year might not be the same. The people might not be coming back because of Penny Arcade being idiots. Mm, their whole response is their response. Yeah, you know, that, um, I feel like that happened, what, right before PAX? Right after PAX? That whole, um, that comic strip, the Dick Wolves thing? I think that happened right after PAX. It, it was I think, yeah, I, after. I feel like it was, like, the day after PAX. Because it was actually, like, I remember it was right, because I actually got to talk to Gabe and Tycho, to Mike and Jerry at PAX. And then I remembered, I mean, you know, I came off of it with this great feeling from them. Even though I still saw there's this, still a dichotomy in the in the conference. Yeah, and I remember that whole thing going down. And just thinking, uh, this is just a complete PR fiasco. These guys have just made the wrong decision here. They they could have just said nothing. They just said, sorry, move, everyone moves on. But, uh Yeah. And because of this, a lot of my friends aren't going or potentially not going. And if enough people don't go, that means I have no reason to go. Which... Because it was more about the people than what can be done there. Right. No, I think PAX East was very much about the people in attendance rather than going there because some developer was going to be there. Well, and, and in fairness, you know, PAX Prime was the same way. I mean, it was it was <clears> nothing <throat> like you know, an E3 or something. I mean, right. I think part of that was just the time of year. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, part of it was just that at PAX, there were a lot more games that were ready to be shown uh, than maybe there were at PAX East. Plus, a lot more developers already know PAX Prime because it's a known quantity, and they might not have wanted to take the time to go set up all of their stuff in PAX East. But definitely oh, no. PAX, I mean, PAX doesn't feel like a bunch of publishers showing off their games. It feels like, I mean, a huge gathering of the tribe. Right. No, I think that's the PAX and PAX East rather than E3. Because E3 did not have that feel at all this year. I was at E3. Oh, you went to E3. Yeah, I was at that's E3. Right. I was there with Gay Gamer. And beyond Gay Gamer, I didn't really socialize much. It was about meeting with developers, going to conferences, or going into interviews, and that's it. It also seemed a lot, also from other E3s, it just seemed like, a, I don't know, like a less fun experience, even from watching it at home. It just seemed, I don't I don't know, just like the spark had gone out. I wonder. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't VGA level terrible, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Other than, even the Nintendo conference after it happened, it's sort of like, yeah, it was great, it was great, and then it just sort of, it lost the luster. It didn't have, I guess. Well, Nintendo was also the least offensive. Sony's was an absolute head slam. Oh damn, yeah, I agree. I well, and part of that, you know, is I experienced this whole thing through the lens of GameTrailers.com and Twitter. So I'm watching the thing online and I watched watching it on everybody TV. make fun of it. You know, so yeah, I mean, it was it was a huge even, press. Even last year, it was like everyone could get excited. Maybe it was just they didn't have anything to show. Like, what, what was it? Bulletstorm was like the big was a big centerpiece, and it was like really, or EA's Gun Club. Well, on yeah, the floor, on the floor, okay. big things were things like uh, Homefront and Epic Mickey. Epic Mickey was a huge push. Speaking uh, yeah, of, it's, um, oh, sorry, um, <clears throat> speaking of conferences and putting people up and stuff. This year was also the first year that I got to go to GDC. Um, yeah, which, which I also can't believe different. was this year. Yeah. Uh, every, yes, everyone fun Ben to go to California. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe we can start did we ever, did we ever get those reports from you? Um, no, no, I don't believe you did. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you got to get drunk with Clint Hawking, so it was all worth it. It really, <laughs> you're was. Going against, it really was. You're going against this year, aren't you? Yeah, I'm paying my own way this year, though, spending uh, my own hard-earned. I, I, yeah, maybe I, maybe I can get maybe I can go this year. Who knows? Finally, get to meet you in person. Yeah. What did you think? That, what did you think of GDC, Ben? <clears throat> well, I thought it was um, it it was too good not to come back. Basically, even if it's going to cost me like 
you know, $1,600 or something. It's um, like it's just totally worth it. And so I guess that's because probably it's a mix of maybe the the, the same sort of stuff you get at, uh, at PAX, but also a little bit of E3 as well. So it's sort of a, a nice mix between the two. Yeah, the big draw here is that it's not the conferences or the panels themselves. It's running into someone else in the hallways and yeah. just starting up a talk. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, heading to bars afterwards with, you know, people like Charles Pratt or Wes from um, Versus Cluhu Land, which sadly hasn't been around for very long now. It sort of disappeared. Yeah. So I thought it was too good to too good to miss again. Yeah, all right. The next thing I have ties into that last point you made. Uh, LB Jeffries has left the critical community. And and, thing, and I actually had to look this up, but so did the guys at Press Pause to Reflect, at the yeah. Press Pause to Reflect blog. They both, they, they shut down or, or had to say au revoir. Yeah, that was something yeah, I remember interesting it. thing this year is, is like watching, um, I get well, I guess the, the wave crested in um, late 2008, early 2009. But yeah, it's sort of... Um, Watching but at the same, the, at the same time, this last year we got new guys like Kurt <clears throat> coming yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and that's sort of a um, an interesting thing to watch. I mean, that's just from my professional research perspective. That's like what it's what it's all about. You know, looking at um, why people are coming and why people are leaving, and and what sort of things you can say about those trends behind those movements. Speaking, speaking of a professional perspective, my question to you is: We see this sort of like the passing of the torch in other critical fields. It just in game in the gaming blogs, does it happen faster? I don't know. Um, well, everything is pretty sped up right now. I I think. I mean, you know, blogs are blogs are really different than like handing off the column space at the Chicago Sun or something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, a lot of times with these guys, you know, I know uh, Iroquois Pliskin finished his degree, I think, and you know, got a job and. I mean, I think a lot of times it can just be that you you don't have time to do a blog for free anymore. I mean, it's you have a living yeah, to make or the support or something. Oh, Fulbright, I mean, it, you know, Fulbright it, also closed down this year. I just remembered. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, exactly. And Steve, you know, he's got a job at Irrational now, and is a uh, and really, he's. I think he kind of said, "I've come full circle. I've." It, he got I've, what he wanted to do. Yeah, and then he I've said what I had purpose. to say, and all right. And yeah. that's cool, you know, I mean, that's a little different than a guy like a professional film critic who's going to be working a newspaper for an extended period of time and then finally handing it off. I mean, when it's just a guy who has a whole lot of really interesting things to say, says what he thinks he needs to say, and either isn't able to say anymore or has something left to say, I mean, yeah, it's a little bit different. The The flow is going to be different than it would be for about just when everyone's a professional, like it used to be in the 80s and 90s before blogs. I know, it's just... These are the guys that L.B. Jeffries or Iroquois Pliskin. These these were some of the people I, I looked up to when I started. They were the oh, ones. These were the, they were the to. guys that I read before I knew what the hell I was. Ta- I mean, I didn't feel confident <laughs> talking about games, and I read L.B. and just thought, my God, like this guy. We linked like, to him almost every week. Oh yeah, but I mean, he was he wrote some of the most interesting stuff I've read. Mm-hmm. Hugely informed the way I think about games. And speaking and Iroquois of Iroquois too. Speaking of best posts, his uh, his farewell post on on game how game criticism is done, which mm-hmm. from the moving part of the Moving Pixels blog actually comes full circle because that's how he started out was trying to figure out how to analyze games, mm. and he ended with his thought on how people are doing it now. Yeah, that was sort of um, yeah a lot of um, L. B. Jeffrey's early stuff was was uh, sort of like studies of other critics from other other um, fields. So like he he looked at Pauline Kael and. 
and a couple of others, uh, I think, as well. The rock and roll guy. Uh, yeah, Lester Bangs, I think. That's it, Lester yep. Bangs. So mm. a lot of uh, I, stuff to, to take away from that. Um, and I, I think we probably haven't learnt everything we can from other um, critical fields yet. So. Oh, I think I think that's definitely <laughs> true. God. You can uh, go back to LB's work and still get stuff that we missed the first time. He was just phenomenal, and you can't go with a retrospective without saying goodbye to him. Should we perhaps take a break for a few minutes now? Or? I'm not sure. continued in part two.